I've got like such a deep, unwavering belief in this business. Mm. It wouldn't matter if I did something this year or next year or the year after. People need what I have to give and they're not going to go anywhere. They might go to other people first, but no one's me. And we all have to remember this. No one is you. No one knows what you know in the way you know it. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders to be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. This is a bit of a time capsule episode. We first interviewed Alison Rice back in 2018 inside the Sydney offices at Alua Media. And if you haven't had a listen, we definitely recommend you go back in time and soak up that first chat. At that time, the Lady Brains podcast was just a baby and Alison was at the peak of her media career as group publisher, responsible for overseeing Who What Where, Pop Sugar, Birdie and My Domain. When we spoke to Alison, she was in a moment of transition from her high-flying role as group publisher into the launch of her own podcast, Offline, a show that explores the intersection between your true self and professional self. Off the back of the podcast, she's continued to grow and evolve offline with other products and services for her deeply engaged community. We spoke to Alison about the different points of tension that show up in business, why content creators need to have an on and off season the reason she's taken on a business partner, and how she's built a business around the often overlooked art of listening. So we wanted to talk about our last chat three years ago. We recorded our first podcast interview with you in 2018. It was at the Allure Media offices. You were still group publisher there. Does it feel like a lifetime ago? (laughs) It really does. And I have to share with you, because of all of the work I've done, personal work, I've really lost contact with that person, that part of me, what was motivating me. And so I'd be really, I know we're going to kind of talk about what I said, but I don't remember. And I would like to hope that I've always been very heart-led and always been in integrity, but I think my integrity's deepened even, you know, and so my opinions three years ago, and this is the thing is we have to have grace for ourselves and these past versions of ourselves as we evolve. And I'm trying to do that a lot. And you guys all know this, like we put a lot of content out there. Mm. And so you've got to kind of put your hand on your heart and be like, you know, go you and good you and you're doing a good job. And it takes a lot of bravery to share your opinions publicly. Mm. So I think I'll be gentle on myself. But, but yeah, so that's my main kind of takeaway is I think about her and I've really lost contact with with her now, yeah. We'll dive into that in a little bit because we did both go back and listen to that um, interview and we want to ask you, do you still believe a lot of the things that you said in that conversation? And it's such an interesting, like I look back and I'm like, we have come so far too. Yeah. I feel like we've all evolved quite a bit in the last three years. Yeah. We're all around the same age, quite a pivotal time in our lives as well. I think we got into podcasting 
the at same that time. really mm. sweet time where it still felt new and exciting. And I guess the challenge we face moving forward is the relevancy of this medium and how it's being used by different voices, um, the voices that aren't being heard. And I think this is kind of the same thing that happened with, you know, print media and then digital media is, you know, the fact that we can all create is wonderful, but I'm a really firm believer and that doesn't mean we all should, which I think is a bit hard to say out loud, to be honest. Um, But I think you have to have done a lot of work on yourself and you have to take a lot of responsibility for what you're putting out there. So that's, I think, the challenge we're going to face with podcasting because there's so many and we're seeing that audience fragmentation again. Mm. And that can become quite disheartening for people like us who have been doing it a long time. But, yeah, I mean, huge growth personally for me as well, like – well, it was a seed of an idea back then. Mm. Um, we'd obviously just started. You were about to launch your podcast offline. And I remember sitting around the table and you said to us, I see something bigger for myself. This isn't quite it, but I do see something bigger for myself. Talk us through the transition, leaving Alua into starting your own business. Why did you make that change? And what was that experience like? Mm, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was a knowing. And this call that comes from a place that we can't often make contact with, that we can't really articulate it, it wouldn't die down. It wouldn't quieten. And if anything, it kept getting louder and louder and louder. And I think I've always known that, yeah, it's hard to talk about yourself in this way, but mm. that I would make an impact. Mm. And I knew there would be a time where I would have to step out from behind the scenes, which is really difficult to do in publishing an editorial because when you're used to just running things and giving direction and providing a vision, but you have all of these talented creatives that execute on your behalf, make you look Mm. really good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to have to kind of put my money where my mouth was and to, to create and execute myself, that was quite daunting. But you know, I got to a point in that role, and I think we do this, it was quite an unconscious progression professionally. I had a lot of those deeply programmed ideals of success and that if I kept climbing and I kept getting the bigger title and I kept earning more money and getting a bigger team and having more notoriety and if I kept doing all that, then that would mean that I'm successful. But I continued to like, quote unquote, succeed, but I still felt this real sense of lack creatively. Um, And I'm a traditionally trained journalist. And so I found myself in a world that required me to strategize ideas that were very out of alignment to my journalistic ethics. (laughs) Mm. Um, And I started to think a lot about legacy and you know, I started online, like working online in like 2011, which was early-ish. And that's a lot of my byline on the internet, you know. And so I started to think a lot about, you know, when you Google my name and when my kids Google my name, what are they going to see and are they going to be proud of what they read? 
And so much of that publishing model online, you know, required us to write pretty basic one-dimensional content that was, mm. you know, all of the click-worthy, clickbait, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, so that was probably the kind of cherry on the cake for me was sitting in rooms, which I probably spoke about when we – or maybe I don't know, I wouldn't know because I hadn't left, but no. <laughs> no, we were recording in your office. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, these realizations inside, particularly sales meetings, to be honest, because, you know, as yeah. you get to publisher level, you're pretty far away from edit and you're very deep in commercial content yeah. and the monetization of the brands, of course. But I found myself sitting in those rooms saying all the right things and coming up with the right ideas, but just thinking, fuck. This can't be it. This isn't it. Mm. This I've got so much more to give. And I really started to think about the contribution I was making and the impact I was having on women because if I'm, you know, directing these journalists to write hundreds of stories a day that tell you that you need to buy this and that you have to try this and that you don't look good enough like this. So you have I thought, whoa, like, what am I doing to people's mental health and emotional health. Yeah. So all these things. And that's kind of where I guess the idea for offline came from. It was a body of work. And this is what's interesting is I didn't think I would be here three years later working on offline. (laughs) You know, it was a bridge. What was the vision when you left? Because obviously you just said at the time, like you had been programmed into believing that success looked a certain way. Did you have really grandiose visions when you left Alua for offline? Like were you still were you still in that space where you're like, I need to be, you know, driven by ego, like I mm. need to be this, I need to have this size community or audience or whatever. Like did you have those ideals or visions? I think my ego was like <laughs> gripping on life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but my my essence you know, the spirit of me, she was way more powerful in the direction of this brand and the responsibility I'm taking for my creativity and what I choose to create and how I choose to monetize. And so, yeah, so I would say it was definitely a head and heart battle for the first year of, you know, especially when you get to a certain level in media, there's an expectation. Yeah of what will happen on the outside. We see so many people leave those jobs and become, well, nothing becomes of the stuff they create for lots of different reasons, I think. So there was a constant feeling of me needing to restrain myself Mm. (laughs) and really shed the programming. Um, And if you really get down to the essence of what offline was, it didn't really make sense for me to interview people about one thing but do another. So, yeah, so I do think in the first year, because it took off so organically, I didn't really think much about audience. And, you know, at that time, just having anyone listen felt like (laughs) a win. win. Um, But I think I saw pretty early on that the community was going to grow it for me. It wasn't going to be this, you know, lightning bolt strategy that I wrote it was more going to be led by them. And so that kind of moved me into this um, position of deep listening, which I've tried to maintain and I do maintain till this day is, you know, of course I have ideas and I like to think I'm well-read, you know, strategically, but there's lots of stuff that never makes it out there, you know, 
that maybe my mm. ego has created. <laughs> yep. But I haven't actually heard the audience or the community ask for it. So, so yeah. I just love this because to me, I can, I can see the tension back then mm. between who you were and, and let's call it ego. And when you explained to us what ex, uh, true self was and you were exploring that idea and it was almost like, what was happening in your head. In real time. In real time, mm. which manifested as offline. And it was all, it was a platform for you to be able to explore this idea. And you can see the clear way where you shed that identity and you've obviously gone on a three-year journey up to this point and I'm sure it will continue to get to where you are now and go, I don't identify with that person anymore. Are they your customers? Are the people that come to you that listen to the podcast that you know, we'll talk about programs in a minute and events. Are your customers you three years ago? Are your, is that who your audience is or who are they? Mm, so interesting you ask this question because I've been, for the first time, I've been getting into the data. We love that. Yeah. We, we also are exploring ours too. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be really like clear because I don't actually think it's extremely additive in the beginning when you're growing something to get obsessed with the data and what you're sort of the numbers, I guess, because I think that that um, redirects our creativity and it pushes us into mainstream performance. Mm. And so I was very deliberate with never looking for a long, long time um, until recently where I have an understanding of where the business is at and what's required of me right now as a founder is to get more articulate with who I'm serving um, and get more into the detail for them. So I think there's three types of people that consume my work and whether that be the podcast or learning or coaching events. I think the first person is like a woman on her way or not even a woman anymore, actually a person on their way. Um, that might be in kind of that career building phase. So still trying to make contact with their gifts and what they're going to do and what it's all going to look like, but have had this realization that they want to be inside a business quite consciously. And more than that, they want to progress consciously instead of just doing, you know, what I did and perhaps what you guys did is just like, blah, <laughs> hire me, promote me, I'll yeah. do anything, I'll work for any type of money and I'll stay till midnight. And yeah. I think those days are, are over and I think we've got the yeah. pandemic to thank for that as yeah, well. absolutely. Um, and then I think up from that there's there's somebody who is engaged in the work, which is the hard part, you know, and I don't know whether that work ever really stops. <laughs> Um, but people who are actively shedding and going deep and having a lot of realizations and making a lot of really big changes in their lives. And I think a lot about this group because my work is often um, an entry point or a mm. permission slip for them to leave their job, move on from a relationship, shed friends. And so I think really deeply about how to hold those people and how to support those people. And then I think there's a third group that is kind of in the space that you guys operate in, which is that sort of founder leader type mm -hmm. who is well and truly on their way and who is either creating or wanting to create and wanting to grow something. Um, but I think they come to me to grow something that means something. 
And so how did you come to this realisation? Like what conversations were you having with your community? What data were you looking at? How did you form this view of your customer segments, I guess? Yeah, so I think a lot of it's felt. Yep. This is something else for anyone listening is that you have to trust what you know. And I had a teacher tell me recently in an episode, Laura Poole, is we don't want to get into the habit of outsourcing our knowing. And so as a creator, especially if you have a deep relationship with your community as I do, you know, and you know because you've listened and you've responded, you've observed I'm very, very engaged in my DMs and they're not just like double tap Mm. cute things. We're having real conversations. So I think the the most part it's felt of what I've seen throughout every product or every offering I've launched. A lot of it comes from my one-on-one coaching because I started to see the trends of kind of what was coming through. And then of course I've got my my analytics of all the places I look at to say, okay, well, what are their age? Um, and then kind of pinpointing what life stage they're at. But for me now, it really is more about the intersection of true self and professional self Mm. and really trying to transcend this idea that we can't bring that true part of us into our work Mm -hmm. because that hasn't really been celebrated before and we can come across a little bit left of centre um, mm. you know, I hate to use the term woo-woo because I think it's really kind of degrading to spirituality and this level of kind of self-work. But we can come across a bit like that sometimes where it's like, oh, go on, here she goes again with her. <laughs> <laughs> with her crystals and her. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and all of these things are, I have a lot of grace for myself also mm. when I think back about what were the tools that I was using then to make contact with this part of me and, I think we cycle through this stuff. There's entry points to spirituality and so we might start with crystals and cleansing and saging and going to see astrologers and things like that. And this is all the path. These are the breadcrumbs and I think it's our the choice we make as to how far we follow them. And so, you know, I'll be really honest with you and say I don't really use crystals anymore in my day-to-day because I don't need them as a, a pathway to myself anymore. I have that relationship is a, it's, it's embodied now. So yeah, but the audience work, it's beautiful. Um, it's confronting because mm. I think we want to believe one thing that sounds really good marketing side. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, they're younger than I thought, hmm. you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then setting about developing product sets and experiences, you know, for those real people, not the imagined people, that I think when we're in that first build stage, we definitely create a story of who they are. And that's what I mean about knowing what stage of my business I'm at is I'm past the storytelling and now I'm getting into very much that more strategic work. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that. I think when you're in the early phases, you – can definitely believe your own bullshit. Um, <laughs> and Joe Horgan from Mecca said to us, like, confront the brutal facts. Always confront the brutal facts and, you know, don't believe your own bullshit basically. And, you know, it's really easy to kind of make assumptions about who you think your person, you know, your customer is or who you think your audience is. And 
I guess when you do this work, oftentimes you are really surprised. Like it's kind of shocking sometimes. It's like, oh, my God, that's totally not who I thought I was speaking to. But you know what's interesting? We've been trained traditionally if we talk about using data to drive strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to call it making data-led decisions mm. for editorial. We're traditionally trained to look at the numbers and make decisions to move forward. One of the things I've really challenged myself with is to shed that as well because I'm like, so much of this is just this self-fulfilling prophecy all the time, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We go out and build new things the same way. We interrogate the data the same way. We make the same decisions. So I'm trying to think about offline's community of people, less about this gender, this age, lives in this state, and I'm trying to think more about mindset. Mm. As it doesn't really matter what age you are because you might have your awakening early at 18 or you might have it when you're 40 or 45 age actually isn't relevant to me. And I think what's interesting about the way we monetize our work, especially podcasting, is clients are still, of course, really interested in those traditional numbers. And so Mm -hmm. trying to evolve that narrative as well of like, it's a lot more ambiguous to talk about a mindset than it is to talk about, you know, these hard facts of like the age, the gender, the the state and I think that's where the trust comes in Mm. yeah you make a good point because also you know when you talk in terms of understanding who your ideal client is it's always like okay well well who are they in terms of age gender Mm. interests and mindset really should be kind of coming up that up top but you're right in conversations with brands it's a harder sell. How do you go about that? What, yeah. what, what are those conversations like in the room? And I guess also talk us through how you have made money off your podcast because I think how you do it is slightly different to say how a lot of other podcasters monetize. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the beginning, if I'm really, really honest about it, it was just pure rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like that. <laughs> it was just going, I'm so fucking sick of that traditional media buy and I just responded to thousands of briefs over eight years and I thought I'm coming out and I'm making my own thing like, no, you can't have it. <laughs> and you, know, you, can't, you want it but you can't have it. Yeah. And you can't have it the way that you have other things. Yeah. And truly for me it's this belief that we have to build credibility, mm-hmm. authority and trust. All we have is the listener. And so I'm going to protect them like I would my child. Mm. And that means a lot to me now because I have one, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And so that's really been my North Star when it comes to commercialization is protecting this person who is consuming my work in a very vulnerable place, moving through extreme life transitions and intimately knowing they do not want to hear me reading a host read ad about something that I don't actually use. And look, I also thought that the CPMs, even at a point when they were quite premium, were still a bit ridiculous for the quality of content that I was producing and the retention inside the episodes. And I think that's one thing that it's kind of gotten away with us, gotten away from us with podcasting is 
we all like to go out with that download number. Of course, it looks mm. really good. Mm. <laughs> you know, like that big, shiny, one yeah. million plus downloads. But it's if one person much. listens mm. for five seconds to a client, it's like they're not even mm. um, mm-hmm. va- valuable to you, yeah. you know. Totally. And so I think yeah. moving into a world where we we sell on retention and quality of audience which really has been my strategy is not trying to grow. I don't think I'm ever going to be the biggest podcast in Australia, like mm. you know, and I, I wouldn't spend a lot of energy or time on trying to achieve that. For me, it's about quality of audience, richness of conversation and how long can I keep you engaged in this work. And, you know, so I came out of Allure with some really incredible contacts and I was really aware of that, but I held it out from ads or from any sort of monetization until season three. And I do 15 episode seasons. So it's a lot of unpaid hours that go into that kind of content creation, especially if you're not monetizing it at all. What was the tipping point for you where you were like, okay, I'm I'm going to monetize it in this particular way? Was it sort of a pragmatic decision? Was it because you found the right brand to partner with? Was it an easy decision or were you like, no, I want to retain this as a purely, um, you know, non-commercialized platform? I think the circumstances were right. I felt like I could protect the listener experience, maintain my integrity as a creator, but also hopefully pioneer a new way of monetizing honest conversations because even that feels a bit icky mm-hmm. <laughs> in itself. Um, and I knew that would always come down to the right partner that allowed me full creative freedom and that trusted me to speak to my audience in the way that I know they'll receive it best. And oftentimes that means pretty light touch on the brand messaging side mm. And the benefit I had, so my um, exclusive seasonal partner for, I think we're on four, five, going into our fourth season, is Estee Lauder. And I have a really um, cherished relationship with the client who was a listener Mm. before anything else. And so, you know, we actually were emailing the other day and we were talking about how easy it is. And I don't think I ever thought it could be because, you know, you've probably been in those situations where you're constantly having to bend and lean and, and I really didn't want to do that. And so my, my thing was, if I can't find the right partner that allows all of these different permissions, then I won't monetize it at all. And also just season by season. Mm-hmm. It's like a day by day thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that you know, for the size of my podcast, what I was talking about with those early CPMs, which you might know better than me, they were about 65 bucks, 68 bucks, mm-hmm. like somewhere around there. The amount of listens you would have to get yeah. to even cover production. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. It's so it's fine if you get a million listens an episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're so right. I mean, and a CPM for everyone listening is a thousand um, downloads. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. 65 bucks for a thousand downloads, which is sort of a going rate, I would say. You have to have a huge audience huge. to monetize off advertising to make it worthwhile. You really yes. do. 
And you know what's fascinating is when you really get into the performance numbers mm. and let's, I mean, there's obviously, who knows, millions of podcasts globally. The average podcast episode gets 150 listens, you know, and so that puts offline in like the top 5% of the country, yeah. Mm, yeah, which sounds amazing. But if you apply that sales metric to it, I'm still not, you know, and I understand you can monetize your back catalog and, but you know, you've heard the conversations I have. At what point am I going to be like, hi, <laughs> when can I retire from my podcast ads? <laughs> yeah. But like, there's just no moment in these no. conversations that I can come in. Interject yeah. with an ad. Yeah. No. Totally. And yeah. it's, it really disrespects the the nature of the conversation, I think the talent and what I'm asking of them in every episode mm. um, and the beauty of the Estee partnership that I have and the way I wrote up the proposal was, yeah, again, protecting that listener experience yeah. but also providing them with a really additive and valuable brand experience. Yeah. And so having conversations with their talent and what we call friends of their brand, it's beautiful because – they're really good episodes and actually one of the sponsored ones is one of my highest performing ever. Mm. Yeah. I think you raise a good point and I also think that context is important because you do have vulnerable conversations mm. and so interjecting with an ad for a brand that doesn't quite make sense, it would be jarring. Mm. I can imagine that and, you know, you've, you've gone a, about it in a really seamless way. I wanted to ask you, are those kind of vulnerable conversations that you were originally having on your podcast, are they now the conversations that you're having in coaching? Because I want to understand a little bit more about this transition from the podcast to the coaching space. Is it a natural evolution for you? Did you feel like this is something that I'm really good at or did it? Did you just happen upon it? Because it is it is quite a vulnerable experience from both sides, I think, as a coach and a coachee. Um, oh, yeah. It's a lot of tears. A lot of tears. <laughs> a lot of tears. You, you learn, you grow. There's a lot of trust placed in you. Mm. What's that experience been like kind of, I guess, evolving the brand into these other products? Mm -hmm. It's been um, the most growing experience of my professional life and – you know, if you want to talk about like my strategy, it's listening and responding. And so the way I run my business is responding to what I perceive as the need of the time. And this is my methodology and it runs into my courses, it runs into my coaching, the DM conversations, the podcast episodes. And so I have ideas of what I think those needs might be, but it's me constantly going back to my community to get validation and asking them questions. So when I get those beautiful DMs or emails that express their love for what I'm doing, it's me taking the time to go back and say, you know, thank you for listening because there's so many other things you could be listening to and you choose this. So to have an hour of your time once a fortnight is priceless to me and, yeah, thank you for showing up for me, but like, what do you need? How can I help you? And when I started asking that around the time I developed the coaching offering, that was the main thing is I want to talk to you. I need some advice. 
And I think that was what was interesting for me as a host was to straddle that line of host and coach. And I guess that's always kind of been my natural style is I call them honest conversations because we're having a conversation. I'm not just firing questions at someone. Mm. So the evolution of the one-on-one coaching was really in response to the audience asking for it. And I think when you move that way and you move your business that way, it takes a lot of the risk out of it, but also a lot of the vulnerability out of it. Because I'm not coming out with something that nobody asked for and hoping Mm. someone buys it. Mm. I'm saying, okay, here's my calendar, you know. And, you know, I did definitely those things in the beginning where I did lots of random coffees with people who just wanted advice and then realizing that that was unsustainable because I still wasn't monetizing the podcast and um, how beautiful to create a product offering, give people autonomy to book it themselves and pay automatically and then we just show up in this same situation that we're in now and we have a conversation. And I started with just asking for the one thing, what's the one thing you need help with? And we'll spend an hour on that. So I kind of outlined some topics that I believe I have expertise in. And this was really important to, I think, my credibility as a coach is we should only be coaching on things that we have had a direct experience of. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, mine naturally led to leadership and building brands, launching things, edit calendars and programs. Difficult conversations inside businesses became a little bit of a... Allison special. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so that kind of grew from there. And I actually haven't coached since December 2020, right before I gave birth to Betty. And I had planned on being back in May, but this goes back to listening to that need. And I haven't felt that it would be evolutionary for me or the people I was coaching on who want to be coached to go back to that one-on-one model right now. Um, I'm also trying to figure out how it fits with this new life stage that I'm mm-hmm. in, but I have some ideas that I'm getting that validation for now on where I think the coaching offering can go. What does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> because you have, I mean, you've also got yeah. online courses and I know you've got one coming up. You've got a couple of others that are sitting there. Is it a group coaching format or is it something entirely different? You can't talk about it. it's, you know, I would love to talk about, I'm just not there. Yeah. Like I'm still in that kind of big picture thinking really, like I was saying down in the data now to really get more articulate with what I come out with. Mm -hmm. But I think the big realization I had is that, you know, you asked me that question in the beginning of like the, did I have that big picture vision for offline? And truly in that moment, it was a bridge between two worlds, mm. you know, the corporate publishing Alison to what is she after this and what do I do? It was a project that I believe needed to exist. These are conversations that we weren't having, particularly with the types of influences I was interviewing in the beginning. And so if nothing else, and it was one season of these really rich, honest conversations, then I'll be satisfied with that but it was having that patience to just let it unfold on its own. Cause I think sometimes we can start things and, you know, we are very tapped into that really 
edgy, high-paced hustle culture, which I'm constantly trying to transcend and to get my clients and students to transcend, Mm. um, that we think we have to like build this thing out from the beginning when actually we just have to do one thing really well. And I think that's been my story with offline is that slow, deliberate, intentional work that's kind of let it show itself to me versus me in ego have to go, well, I can write strategy, so I should just go and do it. So, yeah, so with the coaching side of things now, I'm deep in the need yeah, and really trying to think about, you know, we're coming out of this pandemic, we're all a bit Zoom fatigued. I think I launched my learning offering at a really beautiful time right before it really started to hit, which has been a bit of a tendency for me. So I'm like, okay, mm. we're, we're nice and early, which is good. But then, of course, I fell pregnant and – I had been trying to fall pregnant for so long and and hold pregnancy for so long that I then moved out of creation and just mm-hmm. focused on growing Betty and being healthy. And I think these are the things we don't talk about either as these seasons of our lives. Like, you know, I probably wound down the business at a time when it was just starting to peak because I launched self-study and then I fell pregnant the next month. But I could <sighs> not focus on her and sustain the level of output and creativity that was needed. Mm. Yeah. I remember we were at your True Self webinar when you launched the course and I think in that webinar you said that your intention was to launch courses every six weeks or something like that. And at the time, Caitlin and I were like, how is Alison, is she like 50 people? Like how are you going to do this? (laughs) Um, But obviously, you know, you, you fell pregnant and things changed and I think you know, sometimes we just have to give ourselves permission to like Mm -hmm. not have this crazy output and do all the things. Mm -hmm. Did you give yourself permission? Was that hard to do that? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I honestly, I've got, I've got like such a deep unwavering belief in this business. Mm. It wouldn't matter if I did something this year or next year or the year after people need what I have to give. And they're not going to go anywhere. They might go to other people first, but no one's me. And we all have to remember this. No one is you. No one knows what you know in the way you know it. And it's how we bring our uniqueness into our work. So no, like with Betty, like she was so wanted and I'd suffered losses and we'd been on a two-year journey to meet her. So I was not going to jeopardize jeopardize that and I think that might sound like it took a lot of restraint but for me I was like I'm out (laughs) you know I literally just I you know I did some um I created some products that kind of met my need so I did like this beautiful japa journey which is a practice I do through meditation and it was all this stuff that was kind of serving her growth but also sustaining the business at the same time but yeah I mean I definitely had those days where I thought oh so-and-so is launching a course and la, la, la. And I think you just have to have some space around that and some awareness that that is just the ego doing what it does best, which Mm -hmm. is moving Mm -hmm. you into scarcity and fear. Um, But if you can be a witness to that and just be like, okay, you're done, good. So we're going to go back to what's important in our life right now. And I'm actually really proud of myself because if I had – fallen pregnant with Betty at a lure, I just didn't have the level of consciousness that I have now to give her that sort of grace and space to 
to grow and and I do think the her nature as a baby and as a person that I'm learning about is a direct response to the lean back and lean out mentality I had when when I was pregnant with her. So I guess I'm 10 months postpartum nearly in a couple of weeks and the fire is back. Starting to burn. <laughs> <laughs> the flame is flaring. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very much back in my professional body mm. and brain. And now that, you know, her and I, we have a relationship and an understanding and I'm starting to see the moments for me to be creative and to work and um, protecting the moments for me to be with her. So, but I'm feeling just like excited. Mm. I'm feeling very alive. Um, I'm feeling really myself on the back of having a baby because you know, you, well, you will know if you choose to have kids one day that you do just surrender, mm. you know, and allowing myself to be soft in that time. I'm really proud of that. And what does your professional self now look like? What is your professional brain, your professional mind? What, what is that? What does that look like? Service. If I can sustain my, myself and my family and if I can grow some really conscious wealth that I continue to circulate in the community, um, I'm happy. It's not for me about like, is this a million-dollar business? It's, is this meeting the need of the time? Am I playing my unique role in the evolution of all things? And can I get out of the way, you know, and let this just come through? So, you know, it's not good for like accounting. Because, <laughs> you know, I look at my, you know, my revenue and I think, gosh, that could be more consistent. <laughs> um, but these are the decisions I've made around yeah, protecting the creativity, creating with integrity, which doesn't always mean monetization straight up. Um, but I think I have a legacy business and that's kind of my goal is to build that 10-year, 15-year. Do you ever struggle with that though? Because obviously you are putting so much incredible content into the world you're serving so many people you're offering so many people so much value does that ever frustrate you that sometimes kind of like the maybe the monetary like it's not um it doesn't add up like the money that you're making doesn't reflect the value that you're offering it doesn't bother me because I know it will Mm. and this is the restraint and the patience is you have to have a deep belief in what you're creating and you have to know that nature will support any idea that meets the need and that is created to help the evolution of all things. So like my spirituality and what I believe, what I fundamentally believe and how I live my life is applied to my business. I've moved out of a lot of scarcity and lack stories. I come from a very humble background, as you guys know, so it's always been about needing to earn and that if I somehow earned this amount of money, then that would make me what worthy, successful. Honestly, 
you know, I was on a decent salary at Alua. I don't think I was paid extremely well, which was, you know, actually, yeah, part of the reason I moved on. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't happy. <laughs> you know, I bought all the shoes and we went on the big holidays and I still felt really out of touch with myself and really empty and that I wasn't fulfilling my potential, even though mm-hmm. you might look at me back then and think, well, you've kind of hit the the role, especially in digital publishing back then. But now I'm earning like a tenth of what I did. Mm. Uh, it won't be forever, but for right now, um, while I'm in this creation phase and I have never felt more expressed, more calm, more steady, more happy, I have a little life. Mm-hmm. It's just a little, simple, beautiful life and it's enough. And so if this thing turns a buck, great. (laughs) But if it doesn't, I'm really proud of this work and I talk this way and my privilege is on display Mm. Mm. because I'm in a really beautiful marriage with a man who has a full-time job Mm. and he pays our rent, you know. So I basically make sure at this point that I earn enough to cover obviously anything Betty needs, my own health care, the food shopping, etc., And if I can contribute a tiny bit to our savings, I will. But I think this is what's interesting about marriage is there is a bit of a financial dance as well, you know, because he took 15 months off when we first got married and that really required me to step up professionally and negotiate, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he took that time and then me leaving Allure was me taking that time, only mine's now three years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not 15 months. Um, but he, he sees the potential of the business and I think he also sees me yeah, and how happy I am. And, you know, we will walk down the street and people will stop me to talk about my work and for him, like the pride mm-hmm. almost brings me to tears, you mm-hmm. know? And so we've made some agreements as a family of like what's important to us and, Yeah, like, I mean, we're both, we come from public housing and we just didn't have a lot. And we think, you know, Betty's going to do really well at a public school because we did. And it's that diversity of thought Mm. and people and opinion. So if we've set our lives up around our values and our beliefs, then actually money plays a really small role, but it does play a role. Yeah. You know, um, and we are in a really privileged position and I certainly feel that every day to be able to have conversations like this and then go upstairs Mm. and be with my baby. That is something that's not afforded to a lot of people. But I also know I've worked really hard Mm -hmm. to be able to lean back a little bit Um, and there's going to be different seasons of my life and I'm in one right now that's just a little bit softer and a little bit slower but I absolutely anticipate there's going to be a time when I'm going to have to ramp it right back up, you know, and probably be a little bit more focused on finances than I am I am now. So, yeah, but you guys know, like, I don't know if we talk enough about how much it costs to run a business with really high production values. Yeah. And, you know, I'll launch something and I think, oh, cool, like, I can make this much in 24 hours and then like 80% of it goes back into the business. Mm. And I constantly feel like, why do I, (laughs) that did really well. Like where is the money? Um, And then when I look at my cost base, it is expensive to do it Mm. well and to do it right and to be thorough. So, yeah, so that's, 
That is a bit of a a dance, that one, I think. Yeah. Expensive in terms of money and time. Yeah. To do it well, for sure. Yes, and yes. I think it, it's often a misconception that, yeah, we're, we're earning, you know, a lot of cash <laughs> off of this. Um, and while it is a privilege, absolutely, being able to sit here and have these conversations, it can also be a battle on the other mm. hand. Um, but, you know, while I think we may not be cash rich, we're very rich in the experiences that we've had, the totally. conversations oh, yeah. that we um, are able to share, you know, with our listeners mm. and the wider community. And as you said, you know, how beautiful it is when you're walking down the street and someone says to you, I just listened to the latest, you know, episode of Lady Brains and it's really helped me with my business and mm. you just like on my journey or, you know, any area of their life and you're like, wow, like that. Mm. Makes that, it worth it. That's worth it. And it is a dance. It's an absolute dance. You know, Mm. it's a dance between the two of us. It's a dance between, you know, a partner if you have one. And as you said, it's like, you know, you will be in different seasons throughout your professional and personal career. But in your professional career, sometimes you'll have those incredible, incredible months um, and you may launch something and it goes really well and then it goes a little bit quiet. But this is kind of that that roller coaster that we're all learning to ride and I think Mm. also not respond because, you know, you have reactively. the highs at reactively and yeah. the, those crashes and it's how oh, do you yeah. respond gracefully yeah. and ride yeah. that and accept the season that you're in at yeah. the time. Totally. This is the creative restraint because we all know how to create things mm-hmm. and a big part of my methodology is taking responsibility for what you create, the speed at which you create it and the volume, mm. what you're asking of people because we are absolutely inundated with people wanting us to buy something from them. Mm. And I think part of offline success has been that I ask rarely and when I do ask, it's very intentional. Mm. And I have a lot of people that will DM me and say, it's like you read my mind. And it's like, well, that's basically what I'm trying to do when I ask you these questions. <laughs> you know, exactly. So yeah, yes. that's a big tick of validation for me to know yeah. that I'm getting it right. But there's, you know, definitely like I'm not exempt from those moments of scrolling Instagram and of course. it's not really who I follow now. It's more the ads I get served and I'll see somebody doing something that I thought I would do but I haven't been able to do because it's just me and I've got a baby mm. and da, da, da. And I do definitely have that what I now perceive as this flair of my ego. It's like mm. – <laughs> Raise its ugly head, and I think, oh, hello, you. Um, Do you have a name for your ego? No, just ego, I guess. Ego. <laughs> just ego. <laughs> well, in in the Vedic view, we call it mistaken intellect, and okay. they're kind of one in the same. But really, fundamentally, the ego is innocent, and it's really just trying to protect us. But I'll go back to that witness consciousness and being able to witness yeah. the thoughts versus be identified with the thoughts. Yeah. But I'm not exempt from, yeah, those moments of really fully identifying with the thoughts, but it, now it's just the time it takes me to recalibrate is a lot less than before because I will see something and then go into that reaction of like getting into the notes section of my phone and like strategizing this quick thing. <laughs> and then like the next day being like, that's such a dumb idea. <laughs> Nobody asks for it. Nobody makes no sense to your business. So it really is about, I think, the patience. And I'll go back to that knowing we're in really similar positions and we're not in an earning season, a financially earning season. Mm -hmm. 
but we're in a build season. We're in a creative season. We're getting a lot of trust. So I think about what is earning, Mm, you know, and I'm earning a fuck ton right now of things that are way more important than the amount of money in my bank account. But I think the research I'm doing and the knowledge I'm gaining now will bring in the financial abundance later. But again, I go back to the privilege of being able to wait because if I wasn't in a financial position and, you know, in the beginning I did take consulting jobs and some small strategy pieces with different talent and stuff, out of that shit I need to earn, I need to earn, and then realise that that was really taking me off the work I'm supposed to be doing. But that all kind of coincided with me learning to meditate and kind of finding my community and getting really deep in this knowledge that now kind of drives my business and my business's mission. So anytime I can be around that type of knowledge, that's where you'll find me because that is the thing that helps me get back down to ground because mm. if I'm online too much and I'm seeing too much, I just start to get that hypervigilance around, yeah. like, oh, God, oh, my God, they're doing it, everyone's doing it, I've so missed the boat. It's easy to get caught up in that, isn't it? Mm. And so do you, I mean, you went off, offline for, was it 40 months, days. two months? 40 days, yeah, yeah. 40 days recently. Um, <laughs> Sounds like. A movie title. I know. Oh, no, <laughs> offline for 40 days. Offline for, yeah. <laughs> there's, your, there's your Netflix special. <laughs> yeah. Which I can imagine would have just been probably maybe difficult but also just heavenly. Was there any fear attached to that decision being like, oh, my God, you know, if I'm offline for 40 days and, like, the algorithm and my community might forget me? And, like, did you have any kind of fear around that decision? Because especially in a, I guess – in any business, but especially content business, it's like know. you have to be consistently showing up. Mm-hmm. It's the beast, isn't it? It is. Was there any fear? No. And I don't mean to sound like I'm this person on my high horse that isn't scared of anything. I'm scared all the time. With social, I don't think I'm there enough anyway for it to be this massive gap in someone's day. I would also like to think that a little bit of anticipation is healthy. And I think my community understands that the way I serve them is by retreating to work on myself and to gain more knowledge myself so that I can then pass it on to them. And so the nature of my work requires me to be very quiet a lot of the time, to be very observant of my my essence and to make really regular contact with that part of me. And I guess the other thing was I wanted to be with my baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. again, like she's some someone I wanted to meet for so long. I was finding it really hard to muster up the energy to be on Instagram. Yeah. Mm. Because the moments with her, it's pretty indescribable how rich they are. And when they kind of go from you know, this little perfect thing that's just kind of relying on you to stay alive Yeah. to starting to gain this independence and start to communicate and it goes from very one-sided to a very quick relationship. Staring at my phone and missing those little moments was just a, a no. But like I will share with you since being back on, yeah, I mean I definitely think the algorithm has worked against me in that way that the lack of content and engagement means that not as many people are seeing what I'm doing, but I know they will because mm-hmm. they'll come find me. And I think that's what 
drives me is that if I can continue to create really rich experiences and share my knowledge, people will seek it out. And they're really the people I want to be serving. It's not Mm. the people where I feel like I've got to steal five seconds of their awareness. I want the people who are doing the self-work and go, who was that chick who was on about (laughs) that thing? (laughs) And then they'll come and they'll come and find me. So, um, but I'm, you know, I think we've sort of spoken about this either in DM or somewhere, but I'm very much like a niche and deep Mm. strategy versus a a reach strategy. So like even my personal Instagram, I don't anticipate it's going to like grow. I think I've more or less peaked, (laughs) you know, and I feel pretty comfortable with the quality of people that I'm reaching on there. And I think my challenge now is applying that to the offline account because like one person with two accounts, it's really hard to create across two. Um, But I'm trying to create some, since I've kind of refined offline's direction, I'm trying to allow my personal Instagram just to be me. Yeah. Not have to be this, you know, source of wisdom 24 yeah. seven yeah. and then kind of move that onto offline to, to create that knowledge experience there, which look, I don't know if that's going to quote unquote work or not, but that's my intention. Yeah. I think mm. it's worth a shot, isn't it? You've yeah. got to try. You've got to try <laughs> yes. it. So yeah. we mentioned earlier in uh, this conversation that we were going to play a game called <laughs> Do You Still Believe? <laughs> These are the things that you said to us back in 2018 when we oh, first shoot. interviewed you and we're very, very intrigued to see what your response your will be. Yeah. So the first mm-hmm. one, during school I dropped maths and science, anything that I felt like I was quickly failing at. I've always been quite pragmatic like that. If I'm not good at something, I drop it and I don't force it. How does this play out as a business owner when so often you have to wear all the hats? Do you still mm. believe in that? I do, 100%. I think you need to get the help. Yep. And I think part of the reason my cost base is so high is because I get the help when I need it. I still believe that because I did spend, you know, what was it, maybe 2020, maybe the first half of 2020 really trying to get articulate with my P&L, you know, build one, read one, ask (laughs) the right questions. I was doing all the things that I've been taught and it was just so blocked. Mm. So then I thought you just need to invest in a really great accountant. Oh, my God, yes. Um, So (laughs) things like that. So, yeah, I would definitely say I still believe that I still don't put my awareness and my energy in places that don't feel like – they're a true expression of me. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually where true success, self-success lies is having a really intimate understanding of your gifts. Mm-hmm. And this is a big part of Offline's methodology. And then understanding with those gifts, who are you here to help and who are you here to serve? What do they need? And so that doesn't require you to wear all of the hats and, mm. you know, and I do, again, I'll acknowledge my privilege, but I will also say like, you know, the business dances with profit. So it's not like I'm sitting here saying I can afford all the help I need. I have to be really strategic with when I engage someone. And I'm exploring a partnership at the moment because I know that offline isn't Alison Rice. Offline is a much bigger offering that will probably have lots of different experts and teachers helping Mm. us on our way. And I think to achieve its potential, 
I'm going to, I need a business partner. Interesting. That fills my gaps. And I found her. Oh, you found her. Does she know it? (laughs) She does. Okay. Did you? I think in the beginning she thought it was a prank. Um, Oh, really? (laughs) Is it someone that you had in your network or somebody that you? Well, this is like the big thing for me is, do you ever have that thing where you're like, where are the people? Oh. Yes, literally every day. <laughs> like if every you're listening, day. We, yeah, we're trying to find four hires at the moment. Yeah. Where are the people? Where are the people? Where are those good unicorns that just get totally. it and just know? They're in my community. Duh. I just didn't really allow myself to entertain that. Um, so there's a particular someone who has been engaged with my work and just listened and has joined me for a couple of really intimate journeys. And one of the journeys we were doing, it was a Japa journey and it was all about evolving beyond fear and into intentional action. And we do this practice with mala beads that kind of puts us around the energy of the mantra that we're reciting and it's very unbounded. It's a lot of chopping off your own head, getting out of the way and getting shit done. And I just felt compelled to message her <laughs> and this is, you know, this is intuition and, again, that not outsourcing your knowing because you know. And she ended up contacting me about getting a mala and I said, hey, you, now that you're <laughs> here, I've been thinking about you. Yeah, and she was like, is this real? I was like, I know, this is really weird, isn't it? Like because imagine somebody that you listen to and really respect almost propositions you yeah. in a message and you're like, what? Because if that had happened to me, I would have been like, don't put one over me. You know, this is kind of mm-hmm. my, you know, the dream scenario. Mm-hmm. We never mm-hmm. think the business we want to work in with the person we want to work with is ever going to. But she happens to have the exact experience. I don't at the level as well. So, and going through her own kind of transitions and stuff. So we're, you know, pretty early in our kind of conversations but I'm really excited. And she just kind of said yes officially right before I got on this call. Oh, breaking oh, news. Breaking so news. exciting. So, um, and so, you know, and so maybe it's early to talk about, but like here we are. I feel really good about it and I really mm. I trust her and she trusts me and she understands the potential of this business. And she's actually been doing, helping me do a lot of the work to kind of mine the data and interrogate yeah. what I believe about the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And sometimes you just need that different perspective, somebody who and hasn't been in it for three. Yeah. And like the benefit that you two have. Mm. We're lucky. Yeah, I'll always we're very be jealous lucky. Because to have, like, when I used to work at Allure and I had Mandy, mm, we were yeah. like unstoppable. Mm. You know, and you know when like you think it, they're thinking it, you both say the same thing. It's <laughs> all about the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the work's done before you even need to delegate it. I work really well in a team and mm. I think, you know, I've always known that, of course, I have ambition to grow the team. And so I feel already that momentum of accountability mm. to someone. Like we'll have a meeting and then I have a list of go-dos. I'm like, fuck Yeah. Because otherwise it's just me going, well, maybe next month I'll look into that. Yeah, totally. Whereas now yeah. I've got seven days to produce work and this is re- I'm, I can be a, quite a machine mm. if I have that kind of really conscious direction. And so if nothing else, she's just helped me get a lot done in a short yeah. amount of time yeah. because yeah. I really I only work when Betty sleeps. Yeah. You know, so that's like essentially three hours a day and then I'll do a couple of hours when she goes to bed at night. 
That's very, very exciting. It is exciting. So yeah. Exciting. Yeah. So, but I don't think we'll be talking about it till probably the first quarter of next year. Yeah. If all goes to plan. But re- when I wrote the kind of bigger business plan, I was like, oh, this is actually achievable with help. Mm, <laughs> Whereas totally, before yeah. I was like, how on earth will I? Like to your do point this. when I was on the yeah. webinar, you're like, how is she going to do that? I don't know. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, give yeah. it up to God. It'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Someone, someone I'm out like, there will oh help me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Put it out there. Someone yeah. will be like, it sounds like you need a hand. I am a huge believer in manifestation and telling the universe what I want. Back then in the shower, I'd tell myself, I am the publisher of Who, What, Where. <laughs> Still true. I remember those days washing my hair. Yep. I'm the group publisher at Allure Media. I yep. publish Pop Sugar, Who, What, Where, Birdie might have been. Do I still believe in the power of manifestation? I think I've evolved my understanding of manifestation. I think at that time the relationship I had with the universe, capital U, was that it was a separate entity that I had to signal, coerce, maybe manipulate (laughs) a little bit, um, be explicit. Mm. now with all the self-work I've done and the sort of base of knowledge I believe is that I am the universe. I'm just a unique expression of consciousness itself. And so actually I'm writing my own story. Do I believe in the power of claiming your state and claiming your right to something? Yeah, I do. And that's a constant for me. But I don't, I've evolved beyond this belief that I have to ask for things and declare Mm. what I want, I would never now ask for something that was self-serving in the ways that I would have back then because it would have been about how would getting these things benefit me as a small self-individual, whereas, you know, the um, state that I'm operating in now is to get out of the way and just get on with serving, you know, in whatever kind of form that looks like and whatever benefit I get from that service is relevant, you know, but not interrogating the relevancy. Yeah. I like that shift. Mm. That's it's a big really one. Interesting, mm. Yeah, it's a huge yeah. one. Yeah. But I love that I was in the shower. Like, yeah. And I think, you know, obviously it worked. Well, I mean, it worked. <laughs> it was in, on site, yeah, for you sure. did all of those things. Yeah, exactly. I think I had to believe that I could do that job. That yeah. was probably a lot of me talking myself into. Into it. Self-talk, mm. self, like, mm. yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but I do think a lot about with the state of consciousness I have now, what could I have achieved then? Mm. Because I didn't really own my voice then. Mm. I was probably – a really beautiful extension of my CEO, which, you know, he's actually now Betty's godfather. It's oh, beautiful. I haven't told anyone that. Um, <laughs> but where we remain really close and he's someone that um, I am a product of him. Mm. But the work I've done since I left him, which is sometimes a big part of what leaving those big jobs is about, mm. is separating from our creator. <laughs> yeah. um, I've established my my voice now and my my own beliefs and I'm not just kind of reciting what I've been told. Yeah, yeah. Next one. Next one. I'm not interested in discovering balance anymore and that's been really freeing for me. True. True. Yeah, that's been a guiding light in this season. 
you know, it's just that I can't have it all at once and do it all well. Maybe not well. I can't do it all with the level of consciousness that I want to and believe I'm capable of. So parenting, big one. Mm. What's required of me as her mother Mm. is presence. And so there's no juggling involved. When I'm with her, I'm with her. Um, which means I'm not on social media, right? And it's like, and if I'm not with her, I'm working and I'm not on social media. So that is actually really hard. But no, I, I don't believe in the juggle. I think we need to transcend that storyline and narrative that we, you know, have uh, many of us have subscribed to. And and as it relates to balance, like what is that? Mm. It's different for everyone. You know, but if I can make contact with all the different parts of me in a day, you know, mother, sister, daughter, wife, friend, creator, founder, I'm happy. But they're like moments, Mm. you know. Um, I'm no longer operating in a way where you just, I'm only work for three months. Mm. You know, I kind of pop in and out of these different parts of self. Very nice. Okay, I think this is this last one's probably a nice place to end this interview. Three years ago, you said to us at the very end of our interview, I'm confident that I'm on purpose and that the universe has a path for me and I'm confident it's going to present itself. Well, true, it did. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. It's interesting because it wasn't, I think I kind of had it right back then that I'm not going to write it and decide it. It's going to make itself known and I'm going to be listening and I'm going to be observing more than I'm reacting and creating and I'm going to listen out for those cues and follow those breadcrumbs even when they lead nowhere and I go, what was that for? And I think it has made itself known but it's, I would go back to the creative restraint because like you guys are the same as me. We're not short of ideas. No. <laughs> Never. Short. You know, but it's about the, you know, in the Vedic view, we kind of call this like the pulling back of the bow. Yeah. And it's staying here for a long time and then shooting. Mm. And so I spend a lot of my time in that kind of lean back, lean out. And then I go into these periods of knowing and creating and then i got to go and retreat again. This chat definitely made us realise just how far Alison and also we have come since we first interviewed her all the way back in 2018. We took a lot from this chat. Firstly, when you experience tension within your business, view it as a sign to take time out and reflect. Tensions are inevitable. There's push versus pull, ego versus essence, heart versus head. When you're unsure about the right direction to take, always come back to your values. Secondly, practice really deep listening with your customers and respond with your offers rather than just launching things that you think people will want. Your customers or audience should be the ones that shape the direction of your business, not you. And lastly, this is for all the coaches and creatives out there. No one is you. No one knows what you know or can do what you do. Get really clear on your own unique skills and experience and don't be afraid to share them with the world. That's it from us. To receive podcast updates, info about our business courses and other useful resources, sign up to our monthly newsletter at ladybrains.com or click the link in the show notes. Ciao.